Well, good morning, and uh, my name is John. I'm one of the pastors here. Glad to be able to worship with you on this Sunday morning. And I'd invite you to turn to our scripture passage. Uh, We are looking at Exodus chapter 15, verses 19 to 27. Exodus 15, 19 to 27. When Pharaoh's horses, chariots, and horsemen went into the sea, the Lord brought the waters of the sea back over them. But the Israelites walked through the sea on dry ground. Then Miriam the prophet, Aaron's sister, took a timbrel in her hand, and all the women followed her with timbrels and dancing. Miriam sang to them, Sing to the Lord, for he is highly exalted. Both horse and driver he has hurled into the sea. Then Moses led Israel from the Red Sea, and they went into the desert of Shur. For three days they traveled in the desert without finding water. When they came to Marah, they could not drink its water because it was bitter. That is why the place is called Marah. So the people grumbled against Moses, saying, What are we to drink? And Moses cried out to the Lord, and the Lord showed him a piece of wood. He threw it into the water, and the water became fit to drink. There the Lord issued a ruling and instruction for them and put them to the test. He said, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God and do what is right in his eyes, if you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees, and they camped there near the water. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would speak to us today, that you would take your unchanging word and apply it into our changing lives. Help us to see that this passage, which is so far removed from us, has something very important to teach us. And Father, we pray that we wouldn't just be taught it, but we would feed on it, that you would change our hearts through the power of your word. We pray this in Christ's name, amen. Well, if you've ever lived with a roommate, remember back in college, or maybe you're in that situation now, uh, there are often a set of unwritten rules that you both kind of go into that uh, agreement with, but don't necessarily agree on what they are. And sometimes they can cause a lot of conflict, right? Like, how long can you leave dirty dishes in the sink? For, you know, until the meal's done and then you better clean them? For 12 hours? 55 hours? Right? People have different ideas of what the right thing is. Or if, you have, if you're out of forks, what's the right thing to do? Do you pull one from the dishwasher and wash it so that you've got a clean fork, and leaving everyone else to wash their own? Or do you run the dishwasher so everyone can have a clean fork? It's funny how little things like this can cause huge disagreements amongst roommates or even in families. Marriage comes with a set of unwritten agreements that you kind of don't, you stumble into. Right? If one person has an idea, well, I'll take out the trash if you mop the floors. Or if you cook, I'll do the dishes. Or whatever these things might be. I mean, probably I could ask every one of you and say, what are some of those unwritten agreements you have in your own marriage or with your own roommates? And the first year or so of marriage can be so stressful because you're trying to figure out what those agreements are. And you realize you both come in to that relationship with sometimes really different expectations about who is supposed to do what. You don't always see eye to eye and even the most basic things, like how are you supposed to fold the t-shirts? 
Or how often do you wash the sheets? Or most importantly, where do you squeeze the toothpaste? The middle or roll it up from the end? And in a similar way, we can enter into our relationship with God with an unwritten set of expectations or even rules. And it usually comes down to something like this. If I follow God and do what he wants, then his job is to bless me in the things that I'm going after. I'll do these things for God, and God had better do these things for me. We tend to follow God, particularly when you're first exploring a relationship with God, not so much because he really challenges your agenda and your goals for your life, but because you think maybe if I include God in my life, he'll allow me to further and have a better chance of getting those things I want in life. And the best way to tell that that is part of the background of your relationship with God is when he starts closing the door on your agenda and on your plans for life. And what so often happens, you get angry. You start thinking of all the things that you've been doing for God and wonder, why isn't he doing more for me? I mean, what's the point in following God if it's going to make your life harder? This is the exact same thing we see the Israelites wrestling with in our passage today. We're in what's going to be a pretty long series through the book of Exodus, and we've kind of broken it up into three mini-series. And the first section is looking at the gift, that we're looking at the three gifts that God gives his people, and the first part of that is the gift of redemption. God promises to redeem his people, but often we have a different idea of what that redemption means or looks like than God does. We want redemption in our way, with our timing, our agenda. And when it doesn't follow that plan in our life, we start to get grumpy, as we see the Israelites do. Where are you grumpy with God? And so often we pursue the gifts we think God can give us more than God himself. And and that's the key thing I want us to see in our passage. From the outside, it can look the very same way. Two people doing a lot of things for God, And yet one person is completely lost because they're doing it for what they can get out of God, while the other person is doing it because they love God, whatever he brings in their life. And that's what I want you to remember this morning. God is your provider. Provider, pursue him. God is your provider. We're just going to walk through this text and draw a few applications out of it. It's pretty simple. So Israel has just come out of this miracle that is so incredible, it shapes the rest of their history. God's deliverance from their slavery in Egypt and then crossing the Red Sea and the destruction of the Egyptian army, one of the most, if not the most, powerful armies at the time. And out of that victory, they essentially write a national anthem telling of God's deliverance, which is what Pastor Brian looked at last week. It's the beginning of this chapter. Moses and the Israelites break out into song to describe what God did. As I pictured it, I pictured like a real-life musical, right, where all of a sudden everyone's there, and suddenly everyone breaks into song with a perfectly choreographed dance to celebrate what God has done. And Moses leads the Israelites in this, and and not to be outdone by mostly the men who are taking part in Moses' song, Miriam, who's listed as Aaron's sister, but if you remember, Aaron is Moses' brother, so she's Moses' sister as well, and probably this is the older sister that if you remember to the beginning of the book at Exodus, that watched from a distance when they put baby Moses into the Nile River in that basket, and she watched Pharaoh's daughter come and, and grab Moses out of the river. 
So she's not going to be outdone by the men. And so she gathers together and writes her own song with timbrels and dancing. And all the women follow her in something like a giant dance-off here to celebrate everything that God has done. This is the happiest time we've seen Israel in all of Exodus. They are singing and dancing. It is their first party, and it's the best party. But it doesn't last very long. Verse 22, for three days... They travel in the desert without finding water. With the heat and the drought that we've been experiencing this summer, I think we've all been reminded of the importance of water. On our vacation last week, we went down to Cedar City, and on one of those days, uh, I took a chance to drive a little bit further down near St. George to ride this mountain bike trail that I've been wanting to ride for a while. And I just happened to do it on the day that St. George tied its heat record for 117 degrees. Right? And so I was out there pedaling my bike, and with about two miles of trail left, I ran out of water. And I knew it was going to be hot before I left, but I just hadn't connected the dots that well that, you know, normally I fill my camel back up to two liters of water, and that day I should have filled it up to three liters of water because of how hot it was going to be. But I never really connected those dots. And I'd done enough time of, you know, being in camping and training in extreme heat that I knew that if I don't take it easy, right, and if I don't slow down and not sweat as much, it is very easy to pass out from heat exhaustion, right? And, you, and, and there was no one out there to help me. So I slowed down. I, I had visions, actually. I remember one July, many years ago, we were doing a hump, which is the Marine Corps version of a hike, through the swamps of Quantico, Virginia in July. Right? And we had so many people passing out from heat exhaustion that all of the trucks that were our emergency vehicles had filled up with people and were rushing people back to these huge ice baths that they kept on hand 24-7 to throw them in there to lower their core temperature. So we actually had to pause the hike because all of the vehicles had filled up and we had to sit down and wait for empty vehicles to come back so we could start hiking again and then allow, you know, have room to throw the people that were passing out into the vehicle to take them back, right? And I, in St. George, didn't have any emergency vehicles. So I slowed down, and I took my time to get back to the van where I had waiting for me a Gatorade that I had frozen the night before and miraculously was still cold when I got to the car. Water is a matter of life or death. We're often so immune from that because we just turn on our sink and we have water. It only takes a few hours away from water to realize how important it is. This summer, we're taking water a little less for granted. But like I said, I, don't, I doubt any of us have had the experience where you turn on the faucet and nothing comes out. Right? Sorry, all the reservoirs are dry. The Israelites are experiencing that. And it's not about how much you allow your grass to die. It is them about to see the death of all of their animals that they're with, and maybe even themselves. Now, they carried some water with them, but it wouldn't have been very much. Water's heavy. They had a bunch of animals with them that needed to drink water as well. I was struck by this. As many of you know, we just got a dog over Christmas. And every time we've gone hiking now, we have to remember to bring an extra water bottle for Wyatt because he needs water to stay cool. And so if they rationed the water, they could maybe survive three or four days before finding new water. And now it's been three days, and they're almost out. But then as they're traveling, someone probably sees some trees on the horizon. I, having spent time in the Middle East, I can tell you there's very little water, and the way that you think, you know, there probably is water somewhere is you don't see the water, but you see green. 
because the desert is so dry that nothing grows unless there's a source of water right next to it. And so if there's a tree there or something green there, there's probably some water right next to it. And so they see green on the horizon. Okay, finally, we're going to get to some water. Maybe they drink off the last of their water that, had been, that was hot from sitting in the sun for days on end. And their mouths are like cotton, and that hot water doesn't do anything to quench their thirst. But they, it's okay, we just got to make it a little further, and then we'll get fresh water. So they see a spring now as they get closer. Maybe some of them run up to it because they can't wait. They stick their hands in that cool water, and it feels so refreshing. Maybe they even cry out of joy of finally getting to water. They lift it up to their mouths, and they drink it. And, ugh, they spit it out. It's bitter. It was probably had high concentrations of mineral salts. Ocean water would have been more drinkable. And can you imagine their disappointment at this time? It's more than that. It's utter heartbreak. Nothing is worse than getting your hopes up only to have them dashed. And this isn't the disappointment that we tend to have, right? Like you're really craving some ice cream, and so you run out to the local ice cream shop, and you get there at 8.05, only to realize they closed at 8, and you're heartbroken. Right? No, this is a matter of life or death. We don't get water. We're all going to die out here. What are we to drink? Verse 24 says they grumbled, which is a word that we're going to see used a lot in the coming chapters. And this passage really introduces us to a theme that is going to feature prominently in Israel's wanderings through the desert, grumblings about leaving Egypt. Right? They, they, they can't wait to get out of Egypt. It's a living hell, and yet they aren't out for very long where they start to look back and say, man, well, at least we had good food and reliable water, which is more than we have here. And see it in Numbers 20, verse 5. Why did you bring us out of Egypt to this terrible place? They're wandering through the desert. It has no grain or figs or grapevines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. So Moses is stuck. He doesn't know what to do. He can't fix this. The people are so parched they can't keep walking to try to find more water. They're stuck, and so he cries out to God. God shows him a piece of wood. Some commentators think maybe this wood is kind of acting like Moses' staff, which featured prominently in many of the other miracles we've seen. He throws that wood into the water, and the water is purified. It's like that, miraculous. And now they have cool, drinkable water. They drink, they refill their water skins, and they rest. And then God speaks to them. He says, if you listen carefully to the Lord your God, and do what is right in his eyes. If you pay attention to his commands and keep all his decrees, I will not bring on you any of the diseases I brought on the Egyptians, for I am the Lord who heals you. That comment about not bringing on any of the diseases that God brought on the Egyptians makes me wonder if in our passage there's something of an echo of the first plague. Remember what it was? All the water in the Nile and other water was turned to blood. It was undrinkable. It was bitter with blood. God is kind of showing Israel, you have a, a path. Is your future going to look like Egypt's? Or are you going to walk that other path? And it depends on what Israel does. God is putting them to the test. A test of whether they would trust God and do what is right in his eyes, or trust 
something or someone else more than God. This was their first test, kind of a a pretest of sorts to get to the heart. Would they trust that God would provide for them even when they're in a desert and even when they come upon undrinkable water? Would they trust that God had led them here and he will provide for them? Or even after seeing this miraculous All those miracles of God redeeming them from Egypt, will they somehow have amnesia and forget about all the ways God provided for them in the past and say, well, you're not providing for us now. We've got to take this into our own hands. Maybe we should go back to Egypt. This wouldn't be the last time they end up in a place without water. What will they do the next time? Will they trust God? Will they forget everything that God has done for them and complain? And let's pause and apply this to us. Maybe we don't face, face a drought, but not the same type of drought that the Israelites had. But I guarantee there are ways that God has disappointed you in this last year, maybe. Or how has he disappointed you in this last month? Or even week? Where you've been brought to something where you wonder, why have you taken me here, God? And how many times has God done something? He's answered a prayer something you've been longing for, something big. I mean, not parting the Red Sea big, but it's big enough to think, finally, thank you, God, my things are starting to get better. We're getting this thing that I've wanted so far. We're finally making this turn. Things are looking up. The clouds are parting. Only three days later, you're staring at a pool of bitter water. And you wonder, why, God? That new medicine, finally, you've been dealing with health issues for years, and a new medicine is finally working, only to discover it comes with some big side effects. They're almost worse than the disease. You get a new job and something that you long to do, only to have that job disappear because the company was bought out and they're shutting down the office here. You, you, You make an offer on a house and it's accepted, only to have the financing fall apart weeks later. Find out we're pregnant, only to have another miscarriage. And what do we do in those moments? Well, it's often the same thing as the Israelites. Why, Lord? Did you just lead us out here to taunt us, to play with us, to grow our hopes only so you could watch our, the big pop of disappointment? It struck me this week, as I was thinking in my own life, how much of our relationship with God is really underlying with with distrust of God. It's why with every little bad thing that happens, one of our first thoughts is, well, God must be getting back at me for how I screwed up years ago. God's toying with me. He's forgotten about me. We all, it seems, I think this is one of the greatest struggles of the Christian life, we tend to think of God as an unrelenting parent who's a has impossible expectations, always ready to let you know how you've disappointed them, how you're not doing as well as your other siblings, you're the black mark on the family. But what if, when you find yourself facing the bitter waters of disappointment, it's not that God's toying with you or forgetting you, but he's testing you. Now initially that doesn't sound any better. Testing me, why? What for? To toy with me? To see me fail again for some cheap laughs? No, it's deeper than that. It's to help you see 
that he is the one you need more than anything else to show you that he is your life, your joy, what it says in our passage, your healer. That he is the one that you must have that single focus for. And so much of your life is about pursuing all those other things. To actually put you on a more solid foundation than the circumstances you are facing right now. To show that so much of your life has been you trusting in your own efforts more than God's direction. When you face that pool of bitter water, what's our reaction? I knew God doesn't really care for me. I knew he wouldn't look out for me in the end. I knew he was just waiting for me to screw up. You can read God's instructions in verse 26. If you pay attention to his commands and if you keep all of his decrees, and you kind of initially read this, and you think, oh, maybe that's the key. I need to try harder. I need to do better at these things. I've got to do things to make God happy, and then he'll care for me. If I just follow God's rules more, then he won't lead me to bitter waters. And so we, sometimes we, we try so hard in, in our life to do all the things that we think God wants us to do. I'm going to follow all of God's rules. I'm going to read my Bible every day. I'm going to treat Sundays as special. I'm going to raise my kids this way. I'm going to do these things. Maybe I'll even go into missions in my life. But you know what? When we do that, often what sneaks in with it is a sense of superiority. Look at all these things I'm doing for God. Look how seriously I'm taking his commands. I'm studying so much. I'm living my life to a higher standard than everybody else. But the the hard truth about so much of that is you, me, We often aren't doing those things out of a love for God, but using God as a convenient platform to make our lives look better. Maybe you've always been a high achiever in life, and now I'm going to be a high achiever in Christianity. Except it's not love that motivates you to do that stuff. It's your own ego. And God sees right through that, and he's not impressed. He's not happy with all that you're doing. But then something threatens that vision that you have for your life, and suddenly, after working so hard and doing so much for God, you still find yourself facing bitter waters. And what's our reaction? This is what I get, God. I did all this stuff for you. I've given up so much for you. This is how you repay me? You've led me to the same bitter waters that that person over there who didn't do near as much in his life for you is facing as well? It turns out you had some unwritten rules in your relationship with God. Do you find yourself struggling with resentment for how certain things in your life have turned out? Why does my marriage look like this? Why have my kids turned out this way? Why can't I retire yet? Why am I stuck here? Why am I sick all the time? When we find ourselves thinking about those things, it reveals that actually we had some unwritten rules in our relationship with God. I'll do my part, and then God will do his part to get my life to where I want it. But we never include bitter waters in our own planning for our life. See, our hearts don't naturally trust God. And the way that we naturally relate to God because of the sin that infects us all, we relate to God through manipulation. 
I'm going to give God reasons to like me. I'm going to try really hard, and I'm going to do through my efforts and my works, I've got a better chance of God making my wishes turn out like I want them to. Right? I'll come to the top of the list for the first person that God's going to bless because he's going to see me doing all this stuff. But God doesn't work that way. You can be doing everything right, and he'll still lead you to a pool of bitter water. We wrongfully think that God kind of operates like we do. He has needs. So when people are nice to him, he must feel better. When people do good things for them, it puts him in a good and generous mood, and he's more likely to dole out blessings to us. But friends, God doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need your good deeds. He doesn't need your efforts to further his plans. He doesn't need anything that you can give him. There is no hole in God's heart that he needs you to fill. There isn't an itch on his back that he needs you to scratch. And so to bring it back to our passage, this is why God tests us. To show us how much we actually mistrust him. To show us how much of our relationship is about trying to manipulate him instead of loving him for who he is. And God does something in your life to upend your kind of equation of how it's supposed to work to show you you can't control him. It's easier to control a charging elephant. And he shows us how little we actually love him. This is why God leads us to bitter waters in our life. To show us what we are trusting in, which is usually ourself and our plans, more than God's guidance in our life, even when it's hard. It's so easy to say, oh, I trust where God is leading me, when your life is tracking along with your goals. That doesn't mean much. Trust is revealed when your life falls off the rails and you're led to bitter waters. What then have you been trusting in? What do you do? Take another step. When God leads you not to a pool of bitter waters, but a bitter cup of suffering. Can't help but be reminded of Jesus' words in the Garden of Gethsemane. Father, everything is possible for you. Take this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. That's love. That's trust. What do you do when you've been doing everything right, perfectly? You followed every single one of God's commands. You gave up a comfy life in heaven where you didn't have to experience sin or suffering and came down to earth and you followed everything perfectly according to God's plans. You never messed up. You loved your enemies. You paid a price for standing up for what is true. And now you come to the end of that and what is facing you is not a reward but a cup of the deepest suffering with your name on it. And how does Jesus react? He doesn't say what we often say, wait, no, I deserve better than this. No, he says, Father, if this is your will, I'll drink this cup of bitter wine. I'll trust you where you lead me, even if you lead me to a cross. And none of us do that. Instead, we grumble, we get angry at God. I deserve better than this. And that's why we need Jesus. God is looking for someone who would love him, not manipulate him, who would love him. 
and he found it in Christ. Jesus is the one who didn't grumble, but took that cup of bitter wine and drank it every last drop. He showed, he was the only one in all of history to show a pure love for his father, no matter how much it would hurt and how much it would cost. And he didn't try to manipulate God's plans by his good efforts. No, but father, look at all these good things I did for you. Because he knew that if he did that, all of those efforts would be shown to be rubbish because they weren't motivated by pure love. A love that would be revealed in how he accepted the suffering he faced, even after living a perfect life. And friends, the only hope we have is in Jesus. He's drunk the bitter waters that you've been complaining about. He trusted God when you didn't. He drank the cup when you ran from it. His good deeds were an offering of thanksgiving to his Father, while so many of ours are often monuments of our own self-righteousness. And see, now what Jesus offers is he offers you himself to give his whole self to you, to tell you to come and drink from me. Come and let me do what you fail to do. Come and be enveloped in my life so that when God looks at you, he sees me and not your failures. And he does this not because you deserve it, but because you, me, are incapable of doing what God asks us to do. We're helpless without Christ. And Jesus loves you. And not your best self, but your broken self. He loves you at your worst. And because of his grace alone, when you had nothing to offer, he offers you himself. As he says in John 4, 13. Pointing down to a, a well, he says, Everyone who drinks this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks the water I give them will never thirst. Indeed, the water I give them will become in them a spring of water welling up into eternal life. You want that? What water are you chasing? What water do you think you really need? The Israelites came to that pool thinking the water that they most needed was, was the water to quench their thirst. And God is saying, that water is important, but before you go there, there's something you need more. My living waters for your heart, for your soul. What waters are you chasing? Waters of financial success, recognition, influence, a family that looks a certain way, better health, a life of ease. That water will never satisfy. You'll spend your whole life jumping from one pool to another. Those, wa those wells will run dry. After a year or two of drought, the reservoir will be empty. See, the point of this passage is, what if the biggest thing that you and I need in this life isn't to get away from the waters of suffering, but to learn how to drink from the waters of Christ in the middle of our suffering? To stop thinking, oh, I just need those waters to be happy, whatever those waters is, this thing to be fixed, this thing to happen. He'll never be fulfilled by that. And to realize that those waters that you are chasing after are in the end desert mirages 
that you keep running to one after another, thinking maybe this will be it. And you're ignoring the waters of Christ that are so close, but you haven't seen them because you're thinking of all those other things. And when you realize that Christ is so near and he offers to give in your soul the healing waters of his life, you develop a deep contentment. Because you know, God is my provider even in the desert. Even when it's so hot out here, he has not left me. And he will give me what I need. We can't miss that last verse, 27. Then they came to Elam, where there were 12 springs and 70 palm trees. And they camped there near the water. These numbers are, are perfect. Twelve springs, one for each tribe. No one has to fight over who gets the water. Seventy palm trees, a complete number. Plenty of shade. I can tell you, you know too, if you've been in the desert, if you've been camping in the desert, hiking in the desert, there is nothing better than cool water and shade. God is their provider. And he's your provider. Will you drink from his living waters that are so close. And one day, friends, those living waters will turn into a river of life. Revelation 22. This is where we're headed. Then the angel showed me a river with the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, it flowed down the center of the main street. On each side of the river grew a tree of life, bearing 12 crops of fruit with fresh, a fresh crop each month. And the leaves were used for medicine to heal the nations. Brothers and sisters in Christ, the path you're on may not be the path that you've planned to be on. But God is taking you to that river of life not just to heal you, but to heal our world so we never face a drought again. Let's pray. Father, we ask that you would help us to see you are our healer, you are our provider. Even when we are so thirsty, what we need most of all is you. And you love us so much that you will take care of all those details. You know our needs. Jesus, you know what it is like to thirst. You know what it is like to suffer. And so you know how to care for us. Help us to keep our eyes fixed on you. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.